Well, we'll be in Matthew 16, and we will begin there in verse number 13. And as you're, you're turning there, uh, I want to kind of have an introduction to tonight. We're going to study Roman Catholicism this week, and then I'm not even sure when the next week we're going to meet, because next week, you know what we're going to have in here? <coughs> Inmates from right, from... The Rocky Mount Jail here, and we're going to feed them, we're going to share Jesus with them, and then the next week we're not going to meet because Thanksgiving morning is the next, the next morning, so I think that's like the first week in December we'll meet again. But, uh, Roman Catholicism, our main idea here is solo scriptura. Does anybody know what that phrase means? Yes, scripture only. We're going to look at the history and beliefs of Roman Catholics and kind of where the Roman Catholic Church came from. Um, did y'all see the Pope Nobile? Ever seen that before, right? Some people look at that. If you've ever seen the Roman Catholic processions, especially in Italy, I mean, they're just, I mean, more people than you can count, right? And, and they're just there and they're looking at this person. A lot of people don't understand what it is, but I want to start off with this question before we jump to the text. What comes to your mind when you think of Roman Catholicism? Works? The Pope? Saints? Mary? Mary? Alright. Ritual? What else? Okay. Alright. The, right? No? Very formal. Okay. Not necessarily the same as a corn shucking Baptist meeting, you know, get up and throw down as they call it, right? A little, little different there. Okay. What else? Exorcisms. Okay. Yes, that's true. In the popular culture, a lot of times when you have one of those freaky types of movies, you don't have the guy from the new, you know, relevant church in his blue jeans and his, his tight little shirts like, hey guys, I'm the local pastor. You have the guy come in who's the Roman Catholic priest with crucifixes and all of that. Anything else comes to your mind when you think of Roman Catholicism? Confessions. Yes. And what's that, Pat? Okay, great minds think alike. Okay. Uh, anybody ever seen the, I don't know if we can ask this, if you've ever seen the Godfather movies? Okay. Okay, Miss Pat's like, I've seen that. Sometimes in church, if you ask me to see a movie, people are like, I don't watch movies, you know, I read my Bible. But, uh, but the Godfather, the concept there within, within the, the Italian Roman Catholic culture is that if you went out and you did certain things that were illegal, how did you get back right with God? Confession. Uh, I was talking to Russell Moore, who spoke at our, our state conference here, and it was really interesting in a, in a conversation. He said, when it comes down to abortion, he said, when you talk to the people who work within the abortion industry, they have women who come from Protestant backgrounds and Roman Catholic backgrounds who both will say, I believe that abortion is wrong. But the Roman Catholics will say, I believe it's wrong, but I can go to confession and be forgiven. Do you know what especially the Baptist women say? I know it's wrong, but once saved, always saved. Now, at the very core of both of those mindsets, is there really any difference? No, there's not. 
So we can come to, to, to understand Roman Catholicism in a variety of different ways, but something that I would encourage you to remember, I learned this in a missions class in seminary. The teacher's name was Daniel Sanchez. He was, he was from Spain and had worked in Central and South America for a long time. And he said, whenever you start talking to a Roman Catholic about Jesus, obviously they accept Jesus as being the Son of God. They believe the same thing that we do about G- Jesus is virgin born, but then when it comes to the issue of Mary, what mistakes do you think sometimes evangelical Christians make when they talk to Roman Catholic about Mary? Don't say Mary. Well, <laughs> like they say that she is? Well, that's what they believe in their practice. Mm-hmm. You can them there, but okay. So like when, when an evangelical Christian would say You believe in Mary. Right. You believe in then Mary, you're an idol worshiper. Right? Because Mary is not Jesus, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you're, you've been raised in a Roman Catholic context, you have such a high regard for Mary that whenever you talk to someone who goes to an evangelical church like this, and if we come off the cuff and say, Mary's not that, it's almost, in a way, culture, extremely culturally offensive, but then what can happen is we can put a roadblock between them and Jesus. And this was so brilliant. I said, why have I never thought of that? You know what Daniel Sanchez says to say to a Roman Catholic when they ask, well, what do you, as a Baptist, evangelical, think of Mary? He says this, I actually follow the words of Mary because her last recorded words in the Bible, the miracle at Cana, she said, here's Jesus, do what he says. Boom. Let's take a step back. Does the Bible give honor to Mary? Absolutely. I mean, she was the one that God chose out of all of the women to be the one to bear the Son of God, God in human flesh. So sometimes I think we as evangelicals can come at it from the wrong angle and see because something is, maybe a concept is abused, taken too far, we lose the power of it. But Mary is, I mean, a great person in the scriptures, someone who is blessed of God. So I think when we talk to Roman Catholics, we should say, absolutely, God chose Mary, God blessed Mary, she's a hero. I mean, imagine the moral heroism of a teenage, what we believe is probably a teenage girl, Jewish girl in that time, coming to her parents and her betrothed husband saying, I am pure, but God did this. And they're thinking, right. And to have that experience and yet with God and try to translate that to other people while being faithful, there's a lot to be said for just saying, you know what? Hey, I believe the words of Mary. I obey the words of Mary because we can jump right from that to John 14. John John 2 to John 14. Jesus says on the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me. So that may be just a little help there when we come up against that, that roadblock. But what we're going to do for the majority of tonight is we're going to go through... Yes. Because Mary is kind of a motherly figure. Right, and because Mary was, was God's mother, Jesus' mother. And so they feel that she intercedes for prayer. That's why they pray to her. Prayer. So it's to Mary, 
to Jesus. Then now is your your background Roman Catholic? Okay, okay. I thought when we talked, yeah. So Gail has some great perspectives on this, and that would make sense, right? If you believe that to be the case, you know, imagine, and especially imagine within within the at least traditional. Right, Roman Catholic theology, God is often viewed, you know, we'll look at the way that he was viewed, especially in the Middle Ages, as I mean, almost a tyrant. You know, the, the hellfire and the damnation with no context around it. Well, sometimes if you have a father who's very angry and almost unstable, and then you have a loving mother, why wouldn't you go to mom to try to make peace with dad than just us going straight to dad? And so thank you for that perspective. And feel free to jump in, especially if y'all have had conversations as well. Um, just This is just a mini survey of the history of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, somebody tell me what happened to most Christians after Jesus ascended to heaven, once they actually started going in all the world making disciples. Persecuted. Big time. To be a Christian was to be one of the persecuted. But in 313, Constantine gave the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan basically ended the persecution of Christians. He restored their property, alright, that had been confiscated. And he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, alright? And I like this phrase. I read this in a book a long time ago. So uh, I'm not trying to plagiarize here. I don't remember the source, but it says that Constantine Christianized paganism and paganized Christianity. You tell me, what could be the dangers of having Christianity as the state religion? Maybe a lot like what we find in Muslim countries, right? To to be an ethnic, um, I don't know, from Tajikistan, you're you're considered to be a Muslim, right? It it comes with the territory, and we'll look at more of the danger of of what happened with that. But um, the problem is that the Christian leadership, okay? Now now imagine this: you've got a persecuted church, so those who were in leadership in the church were prime targets, okay? This was not, it was not for the faint of heart to be a church leader in that time. But what happened is that Christian leadership became integrated with the government office. These, these bishops, church leaders, elders, now they were kind of in bed, so to speak, with Constantine the emperor. And Constantine was a brilliant politician. We're not going to get off into the wrongs and rights, but just Barack Obama, I disagree with him on a lot, all right? But I will say that as far as getting that he is a brilliant politician to be elected two times in the way that he was, he's able to get those types of things done. <coughs> Constantine was that same type of guy. He was able to take this crumbling Roman Empire and try to duct tape it together with saying that we're all Christians because Christianity was on the rise. So what happened here is that Rome gains importance over the Christian leadership of other cities. 
Um, God had really blessed the, the church there in Rome. They had some great theologians, people who stood up for the right thing. And so what happened is the other churches began to look at Rome to give them leadership because they had great leaders. And then in 452, uh, Attila or Attila the Hun, they were on, I mean, they were right there getting ready to sack Rome. Well, Pope Leo goes out, and this is in secular history books, and he, we don't know exactly what he said, but here's Attila the Hun that we don't have kids in here tonight so we can say this. You know what Attila the Hun was actually known for? Not just destroying his enemies, but he would take people and he would literally rip them apart or have them ripped apart. And we think the Assyrians in the Old Testament were bad. This dude was straight up demonic. I mean, just annihilating the Roman emperor. Empire, So he's there, and he's got this huge army from, I guess it would be Western Europe or Western Asia, and they're all there, and the Romans have very few people to defend the city. Well, guess who stands up? The Christian guy. He goes out, and he talks to Attila the Hun, I mean the barbarian of barbarians, and Attila respects Leo and chooses not to sack and destroy Rome. All right, stop. Let's imagine we're all pagan Romans. Rome was founded in the 700s B.C. It had been like the light of the world. That's what the pagans called it. Jesus' little play on words there. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, he's like, no, Rome's not the light. You are the light. But imagine if we were pagan Romans and we had seen the Roman Empire kind of disintegrate, like I think in certain cases, like we see the United States in certain ways, losing what it once had. What do you think our reaction would be if there was this once minority group, religious group, and yet their leader essentially saved our Rome? What would your reaction be? Absolutely. I don't really care what this guy believes. This guy knows how to get stuff done. And if I'm a pagan Roman, the only thing that's bad is to be an atheist. I already believe in a bunch of gods. Guess what? I may give this guy's God the time of day. Well, we all know that power, what? Corrupts. And absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So you've got over a hundred years, 313, Constantine paganized Christianity and Christianized paganism. And now you have Leo, who from what we think was a good guy, but here's what happened. The church was elevated to the status of like a savior. And here's what began to be taught. Apostolic secession, which meant that Peter was the first pope. Because Jesus, obviously, we're going to look here in just a few minutes, Jesus obviously meant for Peter to be the first pope. Well, then Peter was to elect the next pope, who would be elected by the church to be the next pope. So the Roman Catholic Church saw itself um, at that point, I guess, I don't know if we could call it the Roman Catholic Church at that time, it was still somewhat faithful um, to Christ. But let's jump into Matthew 16, and we'll just uh, work through this and then ask some questions. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? That's an awesome question. And by the way, Jesus is still asking people that question today. 
Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son uh, of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Some people read this last verse, and they say, well, why would Jesus, if he's come into the world to save the world, why would you tell people not to tell other people that you're the savior of the world? Anybody remember some of the viewpoints that were going around during this time about what the Messiah or the Christ would actually be and do? Absolutely. It's going to be Chuck Norris, right? Rescue us from the, from the bad guys. So here's, here's some questions, alright? Because on this, this idea here is based on the premise of a Roman Catholicism. The question, was Peter the first Pope? Here's our question. Did Jesus build his church on Peter or Peter's confession, a.k.a. that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Now, most of us would say the confession. All right? The Roman Catholic would say that Jesus was talking about Peter specifically. All right? Now, at this point... Usually, before we get to the next question, usually what will happen with evangelical teachers is we'll go to the Greek, right? To where Jesus says, you are Petros, like little rock, you're Peter. But on this Petra, like the uh, Christian rock group back in the 80s, 90s, Petra, I wasn't allowed to listen to it. I don't know if it's good or not, if they're demonic or however that goes, but they they were all, okay. Um, But... Petra means, you know, a big rock. And there's some people, you know, a lot of us, we don't, you know, we don't go to our jobs and be like, hey, I was studying the Greek lexicon. Like, even if we do say that stuff in casual conversations, most of the time people don't know or they don't care. So I don't know how how valuable it really is to, to say, well, I was told that the Greek says this. And I really think that the Greek Jesus is talking about the confession. I really do. I think you really have to do some some... Some gymnastics and some flips and some bending over backward to say that Jesus was saying that Peter, you're it, alright, for, for several reasons. But I think these next few questions are helpful, uh, when you, when you talk to Roman Catholics. So here's, here's the question. Even if Peter, if Jesus was referring to Peter, is it clear that Jesus established apostolic secession? Apostolic secession meaning that Peter's the first pope, meaning there will be others. Is there anything about that in there? No. There's just simply not. So I think lovingly and graciously we can say it's just not in there. Right? It's just not in the text. It's something that we'd have to read into the text instead of read and draw out of it. Alright, another question. How does Jesus address Peter in the immediate verses that follow? Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. Notice this. This is almost humorous. 
Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, let's stop right there. Have you ever seen a teacher or a mom or a dad or a grandparent take a child aside? You're out of line, but I don't want to call you out in, all, in front of all these people. I will take you aside and rebuke you. Jesus was essentially being treated by Peter like Jesus was the child. All right. So here's what Peter says. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, quote, Get behind me, Satan. Wow. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Yes. Ouch. (laughs) Big ouch. So that... I think this is a small application that we can draw. Like Jerry Clower, those of you who are familiar with him, great man of God, so funny. We miss him. He was a great spokesman for the gospel. I remember him saying one time, I've been driving down the road, fighting. He says, Jerry wanting to do what Jerry wants to do, and Jesus is telling Jerry to do something different. Those types of times to where we struggle and we kick against the will of God, I think this would be a good little reminder just to say, not my will, but yours be done. Because when we want to tell God the way that it should be, he may say, well, let me bring you to the side. Get behind me, you little Satan, right? You're a hindrance, so shape up. So here's the thing. If Peter is the first pope, you tell me what Jesus says about the first pope. Right after Jesus popularized him. All right? He was disciplined, all right, good. Specifically, how? Like, what character? What characteristics can we draw from the first? And once again, we're not trying to make fun, we're just trying to prepare ourselves to be able to speak truth. So he was disciplined, but what can we say about the first pope if Peter was the first pope? He was actually hindering Jesus' message by telling, by saying that. And okay. Also, I, I kind of see that he's saying... You know, Jesus just told him what's going to happen. It's a prophecy. Uh huh. And Peter's telling the Lord his prophecy is not going to happen. Okay. So we could say he was a hindrance to Jesus. He was an advocate for Satan. Right? Um, his mind was on the opposite of heavenly things. Earthly things, which is the book of James chapter 3, says that the, the wisdom that is from below, demonic worldly wisdom, is about earthly things. I, I don't understand how they got Peter to be the first pope. Now, I could understand it a little better if it had been Paul. Hmm. Because Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Peter was sent to preach to the Jews. That's actually, I've never thought of that before. That's a great point. Because most Roman Catholics are not Jews, right? They're primarily, you know, Europeans and all around the world now, South Central America. I've never thought about that. That's a great point. And even, now that you mentioned that, Paul rebuked, disciplined Peter for kind of slipping back into that Jew only mentality. That's a great point, Bill. I've, I've never thought about that before. So that, that would, we can just put that in the PowerPoint before we upload it, website, and we'll, we'll footnote you. How about that? Alright? But, um, but this is something that, now by the way, 
if you're talking to a Roman Catholic and you're trying to work through this text, it's probably not very helpful to say, well, Jesus called your first pope Satan. So what's that say about all the rest of them? Big sa- I mean, don't, don't, don't do that. All right, don't do that. That's not, not going to help. And any other observations from this text, though? Yeah, and the Roman Catholic Church obviously doesn't worship popes as little gods in Roman Catholic dogma. Okay, Now the Pope is the vicar of Christ or the mouthpiece or the representative of Christ. So in a sense, when a Pope really speaks, you know, like this is the way that it is, it is understood as being from God as part of, as we'll see when we meet next time, uh, we as evangelicals, what's our authority? The Word of God. Okay. But what, now once again, we're in a Baptist church, so we got that T word, tradition. We've got authority and then tradition. That's interesting. Within Roman Catholicism and the Eastern Orthodox Church, they hold tradition and scripture, okay? Both of them as being authoritative. A lot of Baptists, we'll just take a step, step off the cliff here, right? A lot of Baptists will say, we believe in the Word of God only, but if you try to change anything, We'll just leave that there. All right. Y'all been to those churches before. So, uh, but another question that I think would be good to respectfully and lovingly point out is what was Peter's marital status? Matthew 8, 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his whom? Mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Now we know that Jesus is working on Peter at this time because I know some men would say, well, You know, in the words of Ivan Drago, if she dies, she dies. They have that type of mother-in-law experience. That's that's bad. But, yeah. So here's the thing. Within the Roman Catholic system, can clergy be married? Not right now, but they're working on it. That's a whole other discussion about who can be married and, you know, any, yeah. You could get me way off subject there, Lee. I'm trying to behave. But, yeah. So, so you can't, but, but if the first, and here's my thing, if Peter was the first pope, then he should be a good example. Right? Because he was closer to Jesus than any of the other popes, any of us. Like, he was there. He saw the miracles. He actually heard Jesus utter those words, I am the way, the truth, and life, and so forth. So I would, you know, we, we should say, if we're looking to Peter as the first pope, we should imitate. So then, why do we... <laughs> Paul fan, right? That's good. Got the Paul poster, right? Right over the workout bench, yeah. Um, yeah, but that's that, that's true. So, so if if Peter was married, then we would have to to raise a question about why uh, clergy are not allowed to marry today. Oh, okay. Ohio Mary, mm-hmm. but they don't believe she had any children besides Jesus, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I got the names of them in my Bible. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it tells 
how many they are, they store them, four sons, and, and it doesn't say how many daughters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's another thing. We're, next time we meet, we're going to get into a lot of the details of, of the um, Roman Catholic teachings and Scripture and so forth, but that's a great point that we'll definitely bring out. Once again, I think, and y'all, y'all have experienced this, when you talk to, whether it's a Roman Catholic or anybody from any perspective, whenever you raise questions about the possible false, falsity of their worldview, what reactions do we normally get? <laughs> Denial and anger? Yeah. And here's the thing. We have to remember this, okay? We have to remember this, that the way in which we talk to people, we do it out of love, we do it in graciousness, we try to avoid the one-liners that sometimes we can hear from preaching, or like, that. So good, you know, I can just boom, you know, just whip them with that and be like, what's up? But, but it, it doesn't, our point is we want to lead them to Christ. And if we're going to lead them to Christ, then they cannot see Jeff Robinson in the way. I don't want Jeff Robinson or anything about me, what I know, how I present things to be a blockage. So that's something that we'll have to just keep in, keep in the forefront. But, uh, so here's what happened, alright? After Rome began to, I guess we could say, dissolve, uh, there was the, the Roman Church began to fill the, fa- the the power vacuum left by the Caesars. Okay, we'll see how this this works out. Um, if you're a fan of history, you'll love this. If not, just stay with us. Okay, this was uh, in the eighth century, to where Europe was more controlled by the Germanic tribes. Than it was by the Romans. Okay, uh, anybody heard of the Holy Roman Empire, Charlemagne, and all that? I had a history professor that said it wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, it was German. So there's this little guy, Pepin the Short, and he was the father of Charlemagne. He was a warlord of the Franks, which was a major Germanic tribe. Maybe if you've got German ancestry, you may be part Frankish, um, and so maybe that's. We're getting to the point, right? Frank? Uh, And he saved Rome from the Lombards. They were another invading German tribe. And what happened is the church had been very corrupted at this point. This Encyclopedia Britannica calls this, this document, which was a forgery, it was the Donation of Constantine. Now, this is the foundation for all those crooked ads, all of the crooked TV pre... This is the foundation for it. Here's what Encyclopedia... Britannica says that it's the best known and most important forgery of the Middle Ages. The document purporting to record the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, check this out, bestowal of vast territory and spiritual and temporal, temporal re-political, political power on Pope Sylvester I and his successors. Pepin was the boss of Europe father of Charlemagne. These popes came to him and they had this forged document that said Constantine the Great actually said that the church is supposed to have control over the political leaders and also share in the political leadership. What's in our constitution? That Congress shall make no law 
respecting, right? In other words, supporting through tax dollars a specific denomination-ish group. What did you have in Middle Age Europe? You had the church and the state as one. And guess what? Pepin bought. He bought it. And you have Charlemagne that conquered all of Germany. And this is where you see the beginning of the power grab by corrupt religious leaders. Very interesting. And so from that time, we say, well, what happened until the Reformation? We're going to look a little bit at Martin Luther tonight. Um, I think it's 1517. He nailed the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And that was the kind of the start of the Reformation. But what happened for those hundreds of years? Was everyone within the Roman Catholic Church, no one hearing truth? If you want to do a study that will bless your heart, go look up Peter Waldo. Um, it's not where in the world is Waldo. It's not, it's not that. But, um, but he was from France. He lived from 1140 to 1217. He was a wealthy merchant who was very concerned about his soul. And he talked to a certain clergyman about how the, what is the best way to God. And he was quoted in Matthew 19.21 where Jesus says, Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Guess what Peter Waldo did? He sold all he had and gave it to the poor. And this is cool. This is pre-Reformation. You realize that he paid to have the Bible translated into the common vernacular of French during that time? And it was said that the Waldensians had memorized the whole book of Job, most of the New Testament. And it said that they would work all day, and this may be a little bit blown out of proportion through church history, but they would work all day and they would study all night. And in order to get away from the Roman Catholic authorities, they would take manuscripts of God's Word, sometimes just, just pages from the Gospels, and they would put them inside staffs that had been hollowed out, and it said that there were not any priest who would be able to match them on what God's Word actually says. We don't have time to get into it tonight, but I, when I was a teenager, I was exposed to the Waldensians and Peter Waldo. I want to talk to these people when I get to heaven. There are stories about how they were hunted like dogs. Whenever I mean, they would take the gospel into areas that were filled with just corrupt clergy. I mean, it, it was unreal that anybody could believe that. But they would go in and they would preach Jesus and people would get saved. Whole communities and even regions came to Christ. But then what would happen? The corrupt religious leadership would tell the government leadership to go and wipe them out. And they would. Time and time again. But yet these, these faithful people would go and just preach the gospel. Awesome, awesome story. The Waldensians, there's actually still some in Europe. But one of the reasons why we don't see, I guess, uh, like, you know, we've got Baptists worldwide, Lutherans and so forth, is because our forefathers, the Anabaptists, were slaughtered like crazy. But I think the Waldensians even more so. That's, they were saved. And they were killed. They were. It's it's an amazing, amazing story. But notice here, Martin Luther's in 1517. This guy died in 1217. So it's so awesome that God was keeping a remnant, right? Like within Christendom, which is just a crazy phrase. God was raising up people here and there who would translate and, and communicate God's word. Another hero here um, would be John Wycliffe. Anybody heard of Wycliffe Bible Translators? 
They're still rocking and rolling today. John Wycliffe, um, this picture here, you can't see it very well, but here's a statement that he made. Quote, the Bible is for the govern, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Who does that kind of sound like? Or rather, we should ask, who sounds like who? There are some even secular historians that say John Calvin. John Calvin, one of the, the reformers, should be named the forefather of America as opposed to our forefathers because so much of what we got from freedom of thought and so forth comes from these reformers. But John Wycliffe was called the morning star of the Reformation, lived from 1320 to 1384. And here's a few of his statements. He says, quote, It is plain to me that our prelates or our priests or our clergy in granting indulgences do commonly blaspheme the wisdom of God. An indulgence would be you would pay the church and essentially that would be they would give you an indulgence, an invisible I forgive you for something that you had done. And there's a statement that as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory, what? Springs. So it was so corrupt during that time. That, that's what he said. Another statement here. Uh, he said, trust wholly in Christ, rely on his sufferings, beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. Now look at the time frame, 1320. Nobody was even on the radar. Does anybody remember what language most of the masses and church services were conducted in during that time? Latin. Who spoke Latin? Yeah. Nobody normal. All the uppity ups spoke it. It was the language of the scholars. But what, what do you do if you're a person in Germany or France or in, in Britain? Imagine, imagine this. You go to church every Sunday and you've got a guy speaking in Russian. And you're told that if you don't go then damnation will be even worse for you. And then when your loved one dies, then you pay the guy to talk in Russian about and over your deceased loved one that will maybe ease their suffering in purgatory for a certain amount of time. That was the stranglehold that was on on Europe. But uh, John Wycliffe didn't include this in here, but uh, when he died years later, it wasn't too many years later, the Roman Catholic leaders actually dug up his remains and burned them and then threw them into the river. I think it was the Severn or the Avon, which runs into the Severn, which runs into the sea there in, in Britain. And I thought it was so interesting. I read this in a, in a church history book. They said that as, as the Roman Catholic Church spread the ashes of John Wycliffe, so his spirit was spread into all the earth. I mean, you can... Today, in in Orlando area, they have a center for the Wycliffe translators. Someone who said, you know what? My authority doesn't come from a man or a woman or a group of people or we've always done it this way. It comes from the word of God. John Wycliffe. Another hero is John Huss or Jan Hus. You can find it spelled different ways. And this picture is of him being uh, burned at the stake. And uh, his his name, I don't speak um, Bohemian, or it was in the region of Bohemia, if anybody speaks ancient Czech or whatever. But, um, but he said that something to the effect of, 
when I am burned, uh, when this goose is burned, a swan right, will, will arise and it would be, bring glory to God because he opposed the church's corruption. An Italian hero uh, named Savonarola, he uh, was a Dominican monk who lived in Florence, Italy. And I found this description of him that he was a fire and brimstone preacher and prophet. He exposed not only the practices of the corrupt priest, but he exposed the falsity of what they were teaching. And uh, he was excommunicated, hanged, and then burned uh, in Florence, Italy on May 23rd, 1498. And I would encourage uh, all of us, if you don't already have a copy, pick up a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. It goes through a lot of these people down through the ages who didn't have, and we'll get into this next time, but who didn't have the political support that Martin Luther did, okay? Who had no connections. Didn't even know God, like Garth Brooks, friends in low places. They had no friends. But yet they stood up for Jesus Christ and they died for it. We come to Martin Luther and uh, one book said that he was a little boy with his finger in the dam who then pulled it out and let the floods come. Medieval Roman Catholic Church, we talked about this. Uh, indulgences, Johann Tetzel uh, was the one in charge of that. And there was also something called simony, which was the selling of religious office for money. It was kind of like the mafia, but the mafia with inside the church. Okay, And simony is based upon Simon uh, Magus there in the book of Acts, who offered to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when Luther, if you read Luther, when he visited Rome for the first time, he knelt down outside the city, because this is where the Pope lives. I mean, he had just had such adoration and respect. But you know what he found Rome filled with more than any other place he had ever visited? Brothels. Visited by whom? The church leadership. And so he came away from that absolutely uh, disillusioned. But here's how his story began. We're just going to knock this out really quick and then maybe get to some discussion. He was in a very heavy lightning storm. And when lightning struck right by him, he thought he was going to die. He cried out, help St. Anne, I'll become a monk. <laughs> kind of like some people today. Lord, if you get me out of this situation, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll go on a committee or you know whatever. But he was 21 years old when this happened. So he was in, involved with, with the monk monkery and he was trying to find a way to get assurance of salvation. And when he began to read the book of Romans, he came to Romans 1.17, which is a reflection of Habakkuk chapter 2 in this verse. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. By faith in the grace of God. Martin Luther was saved, born again by the grace of God. If you've ever seen the movie Luther, I would encourage you to check that out. It's an awesome uh, flick. So on October 31st, y'all know that October 31st is not Halloween. It's actually Reformation Day. I was going to preach a message on that this year. Maybe I will next year. And then, you know, tell what the parents what they should do instead of dressing their kids up like little demons or whatever, you know, um, they should just shake their kid's head on the top, you know, like Martin Luther. And then that would definitely scare away all the trick-or-treaters um, and then get Child Protective Services called too. 
But um, what he did is he had 95 theses. Now imagine having 95 issues with the church, and he nails it on the church door. Now in that day and time, if you wanted to die, you did stuff like that. But his faith was in the word of God. <clears throat> Several years later, he was called to, and this is not something off of Fear Factor, the Diet of Worms. The Diet, the diet was a, a specific assembly called to basically tell him that he was a heretic in uh, Worms or Worms, if you talk to German. Uh, and here's what he said after they told him, no one in a thousand years has come to those conclusions. He says, here I stand, I can do no other. You know what, if the day ever comes for us and we're pushed into a corner for our faith in Jesus Christ, say, here I stand, I can do no other. It's by grace through faith. And that's where we get our idea from Martin Luther's Sola Scriptura, only through Christ. So here's a few questions that we can address before we go. Number one, what thoughts come to mind about the sacrifice of the pre-Reformation leaders? Mm -hmm. If you do pick up a book of... Pick up Fox's book of Martyrs. You'll probably have to read it in in sections because it's a lot to take in. It's a lot. Another question. uh, What can we learn from the life of Martin Luther? A lot, but specifically, what do you think? Yeah, what other people say uh, according to Scripture. Mm -hmm. I was thinking the leaders were worth it. Absolutely. Bingo. I think that would be a great note to close on. Listen. If I say something the Bible says, you're like, that? what? It, it's not me. I'm not the final authority. Y'all don't go through me to get to Jesus. Priesthood of the believers, which we'll cover next time. We are so blessed to have, and I'll just go ahead and, and hold it up here, to have the Bible in English, and not just in Old English, 400 years ago that a lot of people have trouble tracking with today, but to have the Bible, especially the history of the English Bible, is a history soaked in blood. And we should be humbled and grateful by so many of these people that may get a footnote in a history book. They were killed because they believed that the Word of God should be available to a plowboy. That's Wycliffe. And so let's read it and let's ask God to give us the wisdom and the ability to obey it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your power that is shown through humble people all throughout history who have had great faith in a great God. Would you help us that when we are pressed from every direction by an increasingly secularized culture, when many people don't, like Sue said, so much of uh, there are certain regions that don't even hold to you at all. That we would say, here I stand, I can do no other. Because we're looking at you, who you are the author and finisher of our faith. And we thank you. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.